Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Dale Richard Perlman, author of Road to Rust. Dale Richard Perlman, author of Road to Rust, The Disintegration of the Steel Industry in Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. This book starts around 1900, 1901. If you were to walk down the streets of Pittsburgh in 1901, what would you have seen? It's a different city. Uh, you would see dirt streets. You would see uh, it was just getting going. Uh, however, in 1906, Pittsburgh was the sixth largest city in the country. It was either sixth or eighth, I'm trying to remember. And uh, it had over 600,000 people. And it had maybe a little later, because this would be after a merger with uh, Allegheny City. And, uh, but Pittsburgh would just be growing. It would be in its infancy. Why did you decide to start the book in 1901? Well, I started another book. It's, it's an interesting story. Can I? digress a minute. Sure. I had written a book called Centenarians, 100 100-year-olds who made a difference in the year 2000. And I thought that was a, a terrific year and 100, 2000, they kind of rang a bell with me. So next I said, numbers. What if I chose 10 titans of Pittsburgh and I selected 10 people who lived in 1900, and uh, was rather easy to do. Uh, you had people like Andrew Mellon, Henry Hines, George Westinghouse, uh, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Clay Frick. Uh, I, there are two Pitcairns I could have chosen, and on and on. I came up with 12 key names, and I narrowed it down to 10. And I took this book to a writer's course at Yale, and they said, very well written, but books like that don't sell. So anyhow, I changed that book. Uh, they said, get some focus, get some excitement in it. So I started out that book with the death of um, Captain Jones, who was the number one steelmaker in the country, not just Pittsburgh. And I also started it uh, with um, Henry Phipps, kind of getting the patents for the steel industry uh, from Captain Jones' widow. Maybe at a quick sale price, but not necessarily a fair price. And uh, right there they said, you've got something really good going. So I, I wrote that book, Steel. Now, from, excuse me, it was the Jones, the Jones of Jones and Lachlan? No, that's a different Jones. Uh, was the Phipps the Phipps of the Phipps Conservatory? Yes, absolutely it was, Henry Phipps. And uh, the Jones of Jones and Lachlan was Ben Franklin Jones. And uh, Captain Jones was a steel maker. Uh, 
and and of course Ben Franklin Jones was one of the Joneses, one of the people that I had selected as the top ten, and he's very much in the first book because around 1852. Uh, Jones formed Jones and Lachlan Steel. wasn't called that at the time, but that's what it became. And uh, he was kind of a mentor to Andrew Carnegie. Uh, Carnegie called him his Solon, who was uh, a great Greek uh, legislator and sage. And uh, anyhow, back to this. Uh, I followed that book with Carnegie, Carnegie's arguments with Frick, uh, the Homestead Strike, uh, the Johnstown Flood, all the way to the formation in 1901 of U.S. Steel. And I told that story from the viewpoint of Andrew Carnegie and Charlie Schwab. So my initial thinking was, I'm going to write a trilogy. So the second book, Road to Rust, now I start the story in 1901 with the birth of U.S. Steel, but now I'm telling it from a different aspect, more from J.P. Morgan and uh, uh, the, the judge who uh, became the face of uh, uh, U.S. Steel for uh, all these years, and I tell the story with Charlie Schwab sort of getting thrown out of U.S. Steel. Uh, he got into a, he went to Monte Carlo and broke the bank. He won. He won. And, but back then, you, you don't, you didn't do that. That was bad to win? It was bad to win. <laughs> it was better to lose. And Carnegie lost all faith in him and wrote J.P. Morgan, you cannot keep this man. He's a gambler and, you know, uh, so anyhow, he and Judge Gary, who was really the second person in Road to Rust, uh, did not get along. So one was in the old school. Uh, Charlie Schwab was in the school of um, make steel as cheaply as you can, sell as much as you can, uh, throw out your old equipment, uh, if, it, if you can reduce variable costs, forget about fixed costs, go ahead and do it. And that's, that was the philosophy of Andrew Carnegie. And the philosophy of uh, Judge Elbert Gary was, let's get along with our competition. Let's make some deals. Let's fix some prices. Let's, uh, I mean, maybe not fix prices, but let's make some accommodations. And, of course, Schwab, when they used to have their meetings at Carnegie Steel, they would take a, a gold $20 piece and they put it in the middle of the table. And if someone didn't show up for the meeting, they would bet who gets the $20 bill. Well, Judge Gary didn't like that kind of thing. He was a straight arrow. And uh, so he got rid of, uh, he got rid of Charlie Schwab, who later ran, uh, Bethlehem Steel, and you know, he rose like a phoenix, and there he was as the head of Bethlehem Steel. Did Andrew Carnegie sell his company to J.P. Morgan and yes, the U.S. Yes, for $480 million. In what year? Uh, that would be 1901. Why he, did he sell his company? Well, he went two ways. 
first he was going to build a huge company uh, near Sandusky, Ohio, and he was going to get into uh, rolled products, and he was going to change from primarily a steel manufacturer and a rail manufacturer and beams for uh, skyscrapers to making other steel products, and he would have put the other steel makers out of business. So his choice was do that or sell out. And he went back and forth, and finally uh, all the steel makers went to Morgan, who was a kingmaker, and said, you gotta help us out. You own Federal Steel. It's the second largest steel maker in the country. What can we do? He says, well, I'll buy the son of a gun out. And, and he really didn't like Carnegie. And Carnegie liked him, but he didn't like Carnegie. So what happened was, uh, he said to Charlie Schwab, go, go see Andrew Carnegie. See how much money he's willing to take for the company. And Carnegie said, I would like, he wrote on a piece of paper, I want $480 million. Now, imagine that today. Uh, maybe it would be $40 billion. I mean, I, it, it's very difficult to put it in perspective. Uh, you know, back then, workers were getting as little as eight cents an hour. So uh, Henry Clay Frick had purchased his home, which is a mansion 10 years earlier, for $35,000. So you put it in perspective. Uh, he decided he had enough. He had promised himself when he was younger he was going to do good with his money. So what he did is he accepted $480 million. And later, Morgan went, he called Morgan. He says, you know, we never shook hands. We never got together on this. We worked through Charlie Schwab, kind of an intermediary. We should get together. And Morgan said, uh, yes, come to my office. And Carnegie said, no, you come to my house. It's the same distance from my house to your office as it is from your office to my house. So he came, uh, Morgan came to Carnegie's house, and uh, Carnegie said, you know, maybe I should have asked for more money. And uh, Morgan said, I would have given it to you too, and left with that little stab in his heart. Did J.P. Morgan know anything about the steel industry? Yes, he, he ran a company called Federal Steel. And uh, Judge Elbert Gary was his uh, key man. And Gary ran, um, he was head of the Finance Committee at U.S. Steel. He was president of Federal Steel. Uh, he was, um, uh, he went to Northwestern, but it wasn't called Northwestern back then, law school. He was a judge. Uh, he was a very intelligent man. And, uh, he ran finance at the, at the organization while Schwab ran production. And then I told you he got rid of Schwab. And later he got rid of Corey, who was also a Carnegie man. And he got rid of, uh, well, all the, all the Carnegie people like their women. Uh, I have to you say on that, you say, um, 
Corey, uh, Ju Judge Gary was kind of moralistic, you said, and yes. President Corey um, met a 23-year-old showgirl, Maybelle Gilman, mm -hmm. and he divorced his wife and proposed to Maybelle Gilman. And while a typical steel worker grossed around seven hundred dollars per year, that's quite year, a wedding. Corey's honeymoon cost two hundred thousand dollars. Quite a wedding. <laughs> it was quite, and they didn't stay married, by the way. Oh. And he was not particularly an attractive-looking guy, and uh, there could have been some financial considerations that made her interested in him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and uh, Carnegie got, or excuse me, Gary got rid of all the Carnegie people, and uh, they were all production-oriented. And I, I think that, over the years, that philosophy hurt U.S. Steel. As opposed to finance-oriented? They were not production-oriented. Finance-oriented, uh, today, if you look at the stock market, I think the stock market reacts on uh, what's happening today, what's happening tomorrow. It doesn't think five years ahead, three years ahead. It doesn't look that far ahead. It's the same with U.S. Steel. Uh, they didn't look at new types of equipment being built around them. Uh, they didn't look at specialized products that were available. And, and I get into that late in the book. What was their main product in 1901? Well, in 1901, they produced steel beams. They uh, was probably number one would be railroad tracks. And remember Carnegie, worked for Pennsylvania Railroad. And he named his initial plant J. Edgar Thompson. And he did it with good reason. J. Edgar Thompson was the president of Pennsylvania Railroad. And he also uh, was his number one customer. So uh, he produced railroad uh, materials. Later on, uh, as skyscrapers started to take hold, um, they produced beams for skyscrapers, and uh, that became an important part. And skyscraper beams were better produced, not by the Bessemer process, but by um, uh, more modern processes where you had a, a better quality of steel. They demanded a higher quality steel than railroad. So, Did they do much work for the military? Uh, Charlie Schwab did. He got in a lot of trouble, and that's in my earlier book. That's not in this book. For Carnegie Steel, uh, he did, and they were making armor plate for the Navy prior to 1900. That's when it was Carnegie Steel. And what they did is they remade certain plate products that did not pass uh, mustard. So uh, what happened is uh, originally the U.S. Uh, not U.S. Steel, Carnegie Steel, was fined heavily for producing inferior products. And Carnegie went right to President Cleveland, who was president at that time, so you know it's earlier, and said the fine's too much. And Cleveland lowered the fine, but they still ended up paying a fine. But they produced a lot for the Navy. So. When U.S. Steel came together in 1901, how how much of the steel industry did they control? Uh, probably around 40%, which is pretty hefty amount. And uh, uh, it was a loose confederation in 1901 when they formed it. Uh, it was not uh, strongly put together. It was uh, a conglomeration. 
in the first year. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the union, the old amalgamated union, which was a very weak union, struck in 1901, just a few months later. Uh, they tried to get uh, Judge Gary to um, unionize all the plants, and he refused. He offered them a lot of them. They should have taken it. But uh, Gary said, this was the worst year and the worst time of my entire career, because they were just not prepared for a strike. But neither were the strikers, so it worked out pretty well. We're, we are recording this at the PCN Pittsburgh Bureau in downtown Pittsburgh, and there would have been steel mills all around where we sit, but sure. why did the steel industry develop here in the first place? Uh, several reasons. Number one, coal deposits. Remember, we had Henry uh, Clay Frick. Uh, he had, there was coal all around here. The Mellons had a lot of coal, uh, both Judge Mellon and Andrew Mellon. Uh, limestone quarries, and, and actually we had iron ore back in the early years. Not enough, uh, but we had iron ore. But the coal, which they made coke, and coke was the uh, material that was used uh, to heat the ovens, and we had what are called beehive ovens, good thousands of them surrounding Pittsburgh. And uh, the people called Pittsburgh uh, uh, hell with the lid off because it was uh, hot, uh, it was dirty. Uh, you would ask what it was like in 1900. People would swim and get the water out of the Monongahela River and the, the companies would dump their slag and their materials in that same water and disease was rampant area and uh, people didn't live very long you know uh, mill accidents happened all the time 1906 there were 195 uh, deaths in Pittsburgh alone uh, now that doesn't those are accidental deaths that doesn't count uh, pulmonary disorders that killed people it doesn't count typhoid uh, baby deaths the uh, uh, starvation, uh, all those things. It was, this was not a good place to live, uh, but uh, by the same token, it had all the products that were needed to make steel, and eventually they brought in immigrants, so they had cheap labor, cheap limestone, cheap coke and coal, and uh, enough iron ore, and then later they got more iron ore from the Mesabi district and areas like that. Henry Oliver and people like that brought it in. What would life have been like for an immigrant steel worker in 1901? Not good. <laughs> it, uh, I talk about that a lot in this book, uh, that uh, the lowest paid workers, the day workers, uh, they might get seven or eight cents an hour. Uh, I compared that, uh, back then milk was not as cheap as you would think it would be. It was 27 cents for a gallon of milk. So the cheapest worker had to work three, three hours to four hours to get a gallon of milk for his kids. Uh, many of these men could not afford wives. 
They lived in boarding houses. Uh, naturally, the boarding houses had uh, no indoor plumbing. Uh, they had some a, a basic oven in the basement. Uh, no light, of course. Uh, heat came from coal fireplace. Uh, as I mentioned, I told you how many got their water from the Monongahela polluted water that they drank. Uh, and I'm, I'm reading another book called The Bully Pulpit, and they're talking about the book The Jungle in it. And similar here, that when a guy came in as a young buck, uh, he, he was strong, he worked in the mill, he could earn nine, 10 cents an hour, maybe even 12 cents an hour. But eventually, he was gonna get hurt, and eventually he would become less valuable, and uh, he would become unemployed. And these people, uh, I think of it like um, a wad of tobacco, that the company sucked the juices out of the wad of tobacco and spit it out at the side of the road. And that's sort of what happened to these, these guys. It was not a pleasant lifestyle. Did they live in company houses like coal companies? Uh, some did, some didn't. Uh, when you got to Jones and Lachlan Steel, they did live in company houses. And those company houses were tightly controlled. Uh, it wasn't too bad for people who were skilled. They had a job called a puddler, and uh, a puddler kind of controlled the pace of making pig iron. And it was a highly skilled job. And, and you know, a, a puddler could earn $20 uh, a week, which was good pay. And, the, uh, for instance, I noticed that uh, Jones and Lachlan built homes for $2,500 a home. Well, for a puddler, he could afford that on $80 a month, $1,000 a year, maybe he earned $2,000 a year if he worked a lot of overtime. And uh, they, they had a, a reasonable life. Uh, they did have company housing where they jammed whole families into uh, single rooms, and it was, it was, you would not have wanted to live at that time. Are, are any of those houses still standing? Probably not. They were wood, and uh, probably not too many if there are. Uh, that's a good question. I, I am not positive on that. You know, you had houses in the Hill District here and all. Some of them may still stand, but remember, the houses that might be a single family now might have had five families in it back then. So. They wouldn't look as terrible today. They may have been retrofitted with indoor plumbing. Uh, it's, it's the houses that they had then don't exist as, as we know it now. What were the big immigrant groups? Uh, generally, the Eastern Europeans, and they suffered the most. Uh, you did, well, let's categorize it. If you were Welsh, generally, those were the people who were the puddlers and the skilled people. Uh, then you had right below the Welsh, the English, the Germans, uh, the Swiss, people like uh, Henry Clay Frick was German-Swiss. Uh, and they had skilled level jobs. Late, later, the Irish came in and they spoke English 
and their English was good, and they moved up, uh, becoming foreman and uh, that type of thing. The lowest level would be the Eastern Europeans. Uh, by the way, the Italians also, for some reason, moved up quicker than the Eastern Europeans. Maybe they picked English up faster. Uh, there were all kinds of reasons. But the worst, what they called the Hunkies, the Hungarians, uh, the Russians, uh, the Poles, uh, they were not well thought of by the Western uh, Europeans. So everybody knew what the pecking order was in and, the ethnic and, groups? And unfortunately, the lowest pecking order later would be the African Americans who emigrated from the South. They just never got the really good jobs. So. When union organizing started, was that a problem, the different ethnic groups getting them to yeah, cooperate? Yeah, that's a good point. The Amalgamated Association of, uh, I think they were called Iron, Steel, and Tin Workers, uh, A-A-I-S-T-W, was a very weak union. They were trounced after what, what happened in uh, uh, the 1890s where um, uh, they, they struck against uh, Henry Clay Frick at Homestead uh, they thought they won the battle, they lost the war. Uh, opinion just crushed them. And they were out of the picture till 1901. Remember I said they, they tried to come back in 1901. But originally they were what's called a craft union. And uh, as a craft union, they were more interested in the skilled jobs. So the people who needed the union the most, the seven centers, the eight centers, the 10 and 12 centers, they really did not offer them very much at all. So in 1901, that's one of the reasons the strike fell apart in 1901. Uh, a, uh, the AFL, which controlled their destiny. That was for the skilled workers, the, skilled the AFL? Workers, yeah. Uh, what happened was the AFL did not supply enough money for the strike. Uh, the lowest end workers did not really wholeheartedly support the strike. So in 1901, that strike went down the tubes. So if people struck back then or joined a union back then, could the company just say, oh, you're in the union, you're fired? Yes. They were allowed to do that legally? Yeah. So what was they the incentive? They were called yellow dog contracts. They would ask the people to sign a letter stating that they would not join a union, and if they did join a union, the company could fire them. The company had spies. The company, uh, uh, company was not good to its people back then. So in the face of that, how does a union organize, and what's the incentive for joining a union? Well, it changed over the years. Uh, there, there was a horrible strike in 1909 and another in 1916. And both those strikes uh, ended out in terrific violence, and we'll come back to that. But not until John L. Lewis uh, talked about the, the new man who was in charge of uh, the AFL, his name was Green. He says, I've looked inside Mr. Green's head and there isn't much there, is what he said. Uh, and he broke away from the AFL, which was a craft union, and he made a class union. Now all of a sudden, the lower-priced people said, aha, 
we're in for the money now. And that's when the support really happened. Was that the CIO? CIO. Where did the IWW fit in there? Ah, we have to go back. IWW was not particularly big in the strike in 1901, which I cover in the book. But when we come to 1909, there was a place called the Pressed Steel Company. And it was run by a, a man by the name of Frank Hofstadt, who was the great nephew by marriage to uh, Henry Phipps. And uh, he, he, they called the place the last chance. They, there were other names for it, none of them good. Uh, and anyhow, the IWW, had, which the, the uh, companies called uh, International Workers of the World, they called them I Won't Work, IWW. So uh, uh, they came in and they started with that strike. And they were socialist and uh, communist, and uh, they wanted, uh, they looked to tear apart the old industrial fabric and replace it with a socialist uh, program. And there was a lot of public opinion against that. Uh, so they came in very strong in 1909. In 19, um, uh, and, and it was bloodshed because of it. Uh, it was terrible bloodshed. They, they had something called the Bloody Angle in 1909 at Press Steel. And, and they were powerful all the way through, I would say, about 1919, the strike of 1919. Then they began to weaken. You, you talk about the Bloody Angle, the square at Donovan's Bridge. Yes. Is that, can people go there now? Is mm -hmm. that findable? There's a sign up there for uh, the, the, the thing there. And it, it, it says it earned its sobriquet, the bloody angle with justification. Authorities on horseback trampled the guilty and innocent alike. Billy Club smacked those who hesitated when told to move out of the way. Your book paints a lot of pictures of, of steel worker employees or security people just. Yes, they were called the steel and iron police. They were brutal. and. The, the union back then felt powerless. So they did some terrible things too. And uh, destructive. Uh, they, uh, in the bloody angle, there was a fellow by the name of Exley. And he was a constable. And he took one of the women. Remember you asked me about uh, if people lived in company housing? Well, if you struck, they threw you out of your house. So they threw this poor old, well, not old lady, young lady with a baby. And the, the paper in, in uh, uh, the local paper in McKee's Rocks has a picture of this poor lady's um, uh, pram or, uh, and baby paraphernalia on top of a, a wagon being thrown out of her house by this man Exley. So the steel workers caught Exley on a, uh, uh, a railway, a, a car, uh, with the, a trolley, I guess you'd call it. And uh, they said, you think you're pretty tough throwing ladies out of their houses. Are you tough now? Of course, he said, yes, I am. Pulled out a gun, shooting began. Uh, 
they killed him, and they also killed three other scabs in that, and that started a riot, and that's the bloody angle, and it was, it was horrendous, and no, the workers shouldn't have done that. They, they were lawless, et cetera. Uh, sometimes these coal and iron police could get brutal, equally brutal, uh, and, and that happened all the way through the 30s. Where was the state government and the city government in all this? Well, generally what would happen is the state didn't come in on this strike. They did come in on the next strike that I talk about. Uh, the city government uh, sent in local police, etc. And it happened so quickly that they, they weren't able to bring in the militia. But the next strike that I talk about, 1916 in East Youngstown, Ohio, um, they called out the militia. And that was, that was one of the ugliest strikes I've ever seen. Uh, that one, there's a town called East Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, you've probably never heard of it. Uh, East Youngstown, Ohio had uh, the um, Campbell Works, U.S. Steel, Republic Steel. They had uh, uh, a strike. Things got out of hand. There was rioting. And five city blocks were decimated, totally torn to the ground, nothing left. Um, they, I have uh, descriptions of, of um, uh, businesses just torn apart. Uh, the first to go were the liquor stores. Now the men have what I'd call liquid uh, courage. And next, young kids would come in, grab the liquor, throw bottles through the clothing stores, take that, take whole sides of beef. Uh, they, after the riots were over, they, they uncovered um, one, one house alone had a whole side of beef. It had uh, something like five cases of beer, uh, uh, cases of wine, uh, food, uh, multiple pairs of boots. I mean, this guy really went to town. Uh, they called the militia out uh, of Ohio, Ohio militia. Militia came. Uh, and also the local citizens banded together and uh, created a posse. They went through town. Uh, they rounded up over 200 people. 100 of them ended up in jail. Uh, a few were killed. And before you knew it, uh, the, the city was very embarrassed about what happened. So they decided, what are we going to do about this? You, you asked bringing the, the militia in, bringing city government. The city government said, we can only think of a couple things. Uh, one, maybe we should merge with Youngstown, Ohio. And get rid of the name East Youngstown. Or two, rename the city. And they went and they talked about it for about a year. And they renamed the city to Campbell, Ohio, in, in honor of James Campbell, head of the steel mill. And uh, James Campbell, who died in 1933, happened, they say, to be the wealthiest man in Ohio when he died. And uh, by the way, his 
early partner was a guy named Wick. And Wick is a big name in Youngstown, Ohio. And the city would have been named Wick, Ohio, except Mr. Wick decided to take his family uh, on a, a boat trip in 1912 on the Titanic. And the last they saw of Mr. Wick was where he was on board waving at the people, uh, waving goodbye to his family. Is that the town still called Campbell? It's still called Campbell. Let me ask you about a couple of people in your book. Uh, first of all, Samuel Gompers. Absolutely. He was one of the fathers of craft unionism and was a great hero, more so in, um, I would say, the clothing industry in New York. Uh, he, the steel industry was like a stepchild to him. Uh, he, uh, he was very big until I'd say the 20s, and then uh, he, he passed away, and uh, he fought uh, against uh, the type of unionism that John L. Lewis would have liked to have had, which is more all-encompassing. But uh, He just wanted the skilled trades? Yeah, he, he didn't envisualize the importance. Remember, industry was just getting big back you know, in his later years, 1900 to 1920-ish, uh, people were still doing craft unionism. Uh, we had, in Pittsburgh, we had, they made bottles and glass and uh, specialized things. And that, that's where he thought the unionism should go. Another name is um, Mother Jones. Oh, Mother Jones was a rabble rouser. Uh, she lived a long time. Some say she lived to be 100. I, I, I don't show that that's true. I think they kept adding to her, her age. She worked uh, in the uh, coal mills. Uh, she, uh, she could really rile up a crowd. She dressed in simple clothes, and uh, you know she'd say, pray for unionism, but get your guns out. You know, and she was she was. Uh, quite a lady, and she spoke through this entire area. Another one I talk about is Fanny Sellens, who that was a, a sad story. I had a picture of what was done to her in Terenum in a coal mine, and uh, the history press thought better of doing the picture because they crushed her head in, they shot her three times, uh, and uh, she, uh, there's, there's a book about her. Uh, that is very interesting. And there were women involved in the labor relations area. Well, one you write about is Cornelia Pinchot. Oh, yeah. Now, she was the governor's wife, and he, of course, ended up being famous for working in conservation with uh, Theodore Roosevelt later on in life. But she had an affinity for the workers. And uh, I tell a story in 1934 about uh, one worker who was injured at Jones and Lachlan Steel. And uh, so he began working for the union, passing out uh, cards and all. Well, he knew that people were out watching him. So he ditched the cards he had on him 
and he went outside a bar. He had a drink, and he went outside a bar, and a local constable arrested him. And uh, said, you know, you have all these uh, names of steel workers that you've signed up. Give them to me. He said, I don't have any, because he'd given them to someone else. And he said, you're going to jail. He said, you can't take me to jail. Well, the guy hit him with a billy club and took him to jail. The next thing you know, they asked his wife to sign him up uh, for a sanitarium that he was not sane. And they dragged this guy off. The wife refused, of course. They dragged him off. They took him before a commission. They said, he's insane. They dragged him off. And next thing you know, uh, labor relations aide to Governor Pinchot named Golden had heard rumors of a guy who was dragged off to jail because he was trying to sign up workers. And uh, Mrs. Pinchot said, yeah, you should go to Aliquippa and see what's going on. And he went dressed in a suit and tie, and of course no one would say anything. They figured he was a spy. So he had some false teeth. He took out his false teeth, messed his hair up, didn't shave for two days, got rid of his jacket. This is the time. governor? No, this is a guy named Golden. Oh, wow. And here he hears the story that this man has been dragged off to the sanitarium. So he does some research, and he finds, yes, he has. So he goes back, and he tells Mrs. Pinchot that there's truth to this story, what we're hearing. So anyhow, in comes Mrs. Pinchot. She arranges for the guy's release. There is a huge parade, and uh, uh, things changed a little bit. That was sort of the beginning in 1934 of an easing up. Uh, they used to call Aliquippa Little Siberia because it was so rough on people like this. Is that the moment when things started to get better, life started getting better for the steel workers? I would say the moment came probably in 36. Uh, that's when uh, John L. Lewis, who was a rough, a tough, loud, strong, big guy, came in and he said, we're breaking away. We've had enough of this. Uh, breaking away from the AFL. AFL. And the CIO was formed. And at that, around that time, you had a lot of labor legislation. The NIRA came in. Yes, it was found to be un unconstitutional, but shortly after came uh, uh, the, uh, the Wagner Act, which was pro-labor. And you had Roosevelt come in in 32. All this played a huge part. Uh, I don't think uh, Mrs. Pinchot would have gotten this guy out of prison in 1930, but in 32 she did. He wasn't in prison, he was in the sanitarium. Uh, he did. Uh, the people in um, Aliquippa said, you know, we're gonna strike now. John L. Lewis says, no, you're not ready yet. You don't have an organization. Let us form an organization. And he brought in Philip Murray, who uh, I don't know if you know the name or not, but he also was very large in the steel industry in the uh, 40s and 50s. He was um, 
very well known. Uh, and things started to change. Uh, all of a sudden, unions, which were down to maybe 5,000 people, 6,000 people in the Pittsburgh area, started doubling and tripling and quadrupling. So all that created a, a change in environment, which by 1937 uh, would, uh, that might be considered the start of modern unionism in the steel industry. Did the Wagner Act make it legal to organize? Oh or? yeah, it was legal before, but you know, what the companies would do, they would have uh, their own unions, and sometimes they'd backfire. In other words, they would control a union, and uh, uh, they put out a newspaper, and the newspaper would talk about the baseball team, wouldn't talk about labor relations problems and all. And the, the, their own union would say, we're gonna have a picnic. You know, well, that's not what these people wanted. They, they wanted freedom. They wanted, they wanted more than this union would give them, so. Any of the steel companies have good relations with labor? Well, today they do. I mean, back during the time you were uh, The best of them was probably U.S. Steel. That was the best. One of the worst would be um, Jones and Lachlan. They had a man named Tom Girdler who was tough as nails. Uh, he wrote a book called Bootstraps, and he tells a story where he was a equivalent to a foreman when he was younger, and he told the guy in no uncertain terms to do something, and the fellow uh, refused, so he hit him in the head, and uh, they had a fight. He said, had I not fought that man, I never would have had a history in the uh, steel industry, but he was tough. He, he was very tough. Uh, U.S. Steel would give a little bit, uh, especially to what I'd call the more skilled workers. You know, they had a, a pension program by that time, not much of one, but they had that. They had uh, uh, some health care, a lot like that. You know, they were the best of the bunch. What did it take to make a good steel executive? Uh, toughness, uh, a knowledge of um, manufacturing steel. Uh, you, you know, there's a lot to it. Uh, I've toured a lot of steel mills, and uh, it, you, have to, you have to know mineralogy, you have to know steel making, uh, you have to deal with people, and they're rough people, because it's a rough field. Even today, it's a rough field, so. Your bio says you're a gemologist? I am. What does that mean? Well, at one time, uh, I was president of a store called King's Jewelry, and we had 51 stores, and uh, I uh, claim to be uh, very knowledgeable on uh, gems and jewelry. Uh, and it's, it's a science rather than an art. You can tell one stone from another by testing and things like that. And I had a, a very good early career and wrote two books on famous diamonds. And uh, one time I was president of Jewelers of America and of the Diamond Council of America. And we had 51 stores, as I said. So that was a when did previous you start, life. When did you start writing books? Well, I started writing about uh, 
a book called Mountain of Light, the story of the Kohinoor. And there's a new book just coming out on the Kohinoor. And it's in the, the Tower of London, the oh. Mountain of Light. It's an Indian diamond that's in the Royal Crown Jewels. And uh, then I wrote one about the Regent Diamond, which is in the French Crown Jewels. And uh, I don't know, I just moved into doing more writing. What got you into the writing about the steel industry? Well, that, that as I told you, was numbers. Originally the number 10, which would be 10 key people in Pittsburgh, which morphed into steel when I was told a book like that would never sell. So, uh, uh, and I've, I've done very well with steel, and I hope to do well with the uh, Road to Rust. For someone who has never been in a steel mill, what's the experience like? Oh, there's a lot to see and do, and I had been in steel mills. Uh, I happened to have gone to Wharton and majored in industrial relations, and uh, I had visited mills when I was in graduate school. So, uh, and I actually looked uh, at jobs in Coppers and Ford and places like that, and I decided I just didn't want to do it. It's too adversarial, uh, as my books point out. But uh, just this year, I visited a very, two very interesting steel mills. Uh, there's a company called Elwood Quality Steel, and they have a plant in Newcastle, and I'm very good friends with uh, both their... Uh, I guess their head engineer and their president, and it, it's a multi—it's a, a billion-dollar company. And if, at the very back, I showed two pictures of Elwood Quality Steel, which show how modern steel making can be. They—they they have a steel press. I think it's a hundred million dollars for the single press. You have three people today. Uh, you know, when you listen to somebody, and I, I don't want to get political, but if you listen to somebody like Trump talk about bringing people back to industry, that's not going to happen with steel. What's going to happen is you're going to get very knowledgeable people who can work a computer, uh, one person working a hundred million dollar press, and uh, uh, you have another person moving the beam back and forth, and another person, I'm, I'm sure he had a use, I didn't know what he was doing. I think he was just watching for safety and security. So it's a, it's a different business today. When was U.S. Steel at its peak? You said one of the peaks was around the 1950s or 1950s? Yeah, it really peaked, I would say, during World War II. They didn't know that they didn't, they, they had higher sales after but uh, they were gain, getting close to what I call the tipping point, and uh, they didn't know it at the time. But uh, as they got closer to it, uh, they gave more and more away. They did less and less in equipment uh, compared to the other uh, competitors. And after World War II, remember, we put in the Marshall Plan. All of a sudden, we encouraged places like Germany and uh, also uh, uh, Japan to build new steel mills operating 24 hours a day using uh, the latest 
development, and uh, we're still operating 50-year-old steel mills, which got us through World War II. And uh, we're overpaying the, the workers. Things changed after well, 1936. Speaking of overpaying the workers, you say uh, the, the, it seemed like the things had gone 180 degrees. Steel Absolutely. workers averaged $23 an hour in total pay and benefits in 1982, uh, where most non-union and white-collar workers throughout the country received less than half that. Workers bragged about reading paperback novels or sleeping on company time. The workers had grown fat and lazy, and so had their bosses, bureaucracy, and inefficient supervision stymied growth. How'd they go from this mighty company to Well, that? do you remember I mentioned ph philosophically Judge Gary, where Judge Gary was interested in uh, possibly um, cooperation rather than competition, mm -hmm. and... Uh, they allowed all of the little areas to get away from them. I'll give you an example. It wasn't all the union. Uh, the union wouldn't have had this if it weren't for management. So let, let's start with that. Uh, there's a, a, a gentleman, and he has a, uh, a little museum in Darlington, Pennsylvania, and he told me this story, and I used it in the book. Uh, at one time, Jones and Lachlan Steel was the largest manufacturer of hangers, you know, that you would hang clothing on uh, in the country. And all of a sudden, in came the accountants. And they said, you know, we're only making X amount per ton of steel on each hanger. If we get into rolled goods, pipes, uh, we'll make four times the amount, five times the amount, ten times the amount, whatever the figure was. I, uh, so they said, what we'll do is we'll sell off this business to China. Now, uh, now we probably get all our hangers from China. Uh, and they did that, but they forgot that hangers were, A, fairly inelastic, you know, you... You used a certain amount of hangers regardless of what the economy did. And non-cyclical. Uh, a lot of businesses are cyclical. They go, good times are terrific and bad times they're terrible. Uh, we had it with Marcellus Shale. We had um, a boom on Marcellus Shale. Then it died in this part of the country. Now it's coming back. But uh, So what they did is they, they traded security for cyclical businesses. So that's just one, one little example. Uh, they would talk about places that uh, wanted a specialty steel. Well, they wouldn't make the specialty steel unless it was a large enough quantity. And so one business after another slipped away. Well, your book, Road to Rust, has the subtitle, this Disintegration of the Steel Industry. Could anything have been done to prevent it? I think a lot could have been done to prevent it. I, I, I really do. I think it was a different philosophy we could have had back then. Uh, I think management was concerned uh, with different things, and, and they took different tacks to save it. For instance, what U.S. Steel did is they bought an oil company, 
And rather than investing in steel, which they felt was a losing proposition, they, they went into the energy business. Uh, so I, I think if, if the steel businesses were a little sharper and a little tougher with the manpower, I mean, they were giving 13-week vacations. Well, nobody had 13-week vacations. Maybe school teachers did. But school teachers were not getting paid per hour what steel workers were getting paid. And $23 an hour may not sound like a lot now, uh, but you have to remember back then, that was a lot of money, you know. That probably would be $35 an hour, $40 an hour now. I mean, so uh, they were a little bit lax, and, and government didn't help either. You know, government put in some pretty silly things that uh, created problems. Are steel mills in the U.S. today stable, profitable? Some are. Uh, Nucor, uh, it's funny, we were talking about Nucor, I, I saw a statistic. Uh, back when I'm talking about early steel making, it might have taken 10 man hours to make a uh, ton of steel. Nucor can make a ton of steel in 15 minutes. So I, I don't know how you describe a 15 minute man hour. It's not a man hour. Uh, U.S. Steel's probably number 16 in the world. Unfortunately, U.S. Steel, a uh, U.S. Steel, not the company, U.S. Steel falls uh, behind, uh, I think it falls behind China and India and uh, I'm trying to think who else. It's, I think it's slightly ahead of South Korea, uh, but there's a, a, the name is just escaping me what country it would be. But they're, they're distant fourth. Are you working on another book? I am. And it has nothing to do with these. It's a murder that took place in Newcastle in 1978. So uh, it's, I hope I stick with it. It's kind of a gruesome book. It's not the kind of things that I ordinarily write about. Uh, I like to... Uh, I like to be more of a positive person. This is not a positive story. It's a negative story. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Dale Richard Perlman. He is the author of this book, Road to Rust, The Disintegration of the Steel Industry in Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.